Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Coping with COVID. I'm your host, David Smith. I'm an angel investor here in Lansing, Michigan, and a startup community advocate. I hope you founders out there are so proud of yourselves, fighting the good fight. You're the gladiators in the ring while I watch from the sidelines. But Amanda, Tapan, and I wanted to do what we could to help. So we bring guests like our special guest today, Allison, to help answer your questions while you're out there building your company. Welcome to the program, Amanda. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me again, Amanda with Bamboo. And I'm so excited to have my friend Allison on the show today. Um, I think, you know, for those tuning in from Detroit, we talk a lot about mobility and we come from this huge auto region that's being completely disruptive. And Allison is one of the first to really do it at a huge success rate for us uh, here in our startup community. She started May Mobility. They raised almost $100 million in venture capital, and she's just super knowledgeable about the mobility, tech, and innovation space. Um, so we're very excited to welcome her on the show. Uh, Allison, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here today with you guys. You really are my favorite. I'd probably over <laughs> you up. You're probably like, don't call me the most successful. <laughs> but I do. I just love your main mobility story. I'd love if you could maybe start there and, and share a little bit how you even got in that space too um, and decided to start a mobility company. Yeah. So actually my career started not in the entrepreneurship startup space necessarily, but actually at GM. I worked at GM for about 10 years, the first six of which I was an engineer working on electric vehicle charging systems. So this was like circa 2008 and the Volt had just been announced as a concept car. We uh, were working on designing the charging system, setting new standards, things like that. And it was a really cool experience. I got to learn what it meant to bring a new technology to bear in the automotive sector, especially one that has both safety and customer experience implications. And so I got really interested in that part of how automotive and mobility would be changing over time. After working in engineering for about six years, I then had the opportunity to move over into GM's corporate venture arm, which would have me had me looking at startups across the, the sectors and anything that could help with the, the core underlying business of GM. So I would look at technology from electrification to connected vehicles to help with OnStar. Uh, and back in those days, we were also looking at technology to support SAE level two automation. And as I was looking for companies in that space, looking at you know sensors, software, uh, cybersecurity, but also companies that worked specifically in um, the learning software that helps auto autonomous vehicles drive. I put together the relationship between GM and Cruise Automation, really thinking about how uh, there could be opportunity for the companies to work together and was so successful that we decided to transition it from a venture investment to the acquisition that went through. After the acquisition took place, I moved over into corporate strategy and was looking at how GM would bring the technology to market. And at the same time was taking phone calls from my other VC friends saying, hey, I've got you know, this person who has been successful in enterprise software, they want to get into autonomy. They saw the cruise deal. Uh, would you would you talk with them? Would you help me vet them? And I was getting more and more concerned that lots of people were trying to enter the autonomous vehicle space with very little automotive and sort of safety reliability product experience. 
So when I was introduced to my co-founders at May Mobility at Olson and Steve Vozar, I was really excited to be able to, to join it up with a team that had strong background working with automotive before. Uh, a lot of the research they did at the University of Michigan was working with Ford. Um, Ed was, had most recently been at Toyota Research Institute. And it was a real focus on how do we create a practical, reliable technology that we can match with a market need. So the other thing that I, I found difficult to uh, to swallow, I was at GM just in terms of like, this doesn't make sense, was the idea that they there would be thousands of vehicles out in rideshare, and that would have been in 2019, so last year. Didn't happen, <laughs> but back in the end of 2016, early 2017, I was like, this, this doesn't add up. Um, it's not the right approach of taking a technology putting it out into a market, experimenting with what people want, making sure that you got that right product and then scaling. It was sort of like, we have a technology, let's scale it. And so with May Mobility, we really started with the premise of let's match what the technology can do with some true market needs. So a focus on shorter distance trips, um, known routes. So that way we didn't have to like map whole cities to try to provide useful transportation. And we would work directly with communities to say who needs to move, who needs to be get transportation, you know, to and from where to help simplify how we could bring the transportation to market. So that's what we did. We launched our first service in Detroit in 2018. We did a pilot in 2017, launched the service in 2018 with Bedrock, um, and then launched in Columbus, Ohio later that year. Uh, and then Providence, Rhode Island and Grand Rapids, we launched last year. And uh, the company, we did our series seed very early, then participated in Y Combinator. Coming out of Y Combinator, we did what we call the seed two round. So brought in a little bit more money, both through YC and a couple of other outside funds. And then in 2018, we did our series A. Um, and then at the end of last year, we did our series B with Toyota. You made that sound like it was easy and just very fast. <laughs> we, know, we know that wasn't probably the case. <laughs> easy, no, definitely went by fast. <laughs> your, your, your career trajectory from, I think you even were in art before, you're in engineering. It's like art, engineering, VC, founder. D did you think that all was going to happen? No. So I, art and engineering kind of went in parallel. Um, I graduate, and it's funny, I've been talking to a few people that have been graduating this year <laughs> and lamenting uh, and sort of sharing my experience of graduating in 2008. Uh, different type of economic recession back then, but economic recession nonetheless. So I was honestly just happy to get a job in clean tech. Uh, my first job at GM was only an internship, even though I had just graduated with my um, bachelor's in mechanical engineering, but it was something I could get. And so I took it. Uh, luckily, really enjoyed the work that I was doing and was very passionate about working on clean tech. So there was a good alignment there. Uh, and then in my spare time, just started doing art installations and started an artist collective, which then ended up helping me land the job with GM Ventures. Uh, they had to take somebody from engineering to become an investment manager and I was the only candidate that had experience growing a small business. So it's not, the art collective is small. Uh, we're, <laughs> it's not a, a big operation. We've got uh, 
eight resident artists in the space. We do about eight art shows a year, but I had to figure out how to create a brand, how to create awareness in the right circles and things like that. And that's really what helped kind of drive me past other potential candidates for the ventures role, which helped me then springboard into better understanding startups, venture capital, and giving me the confidence then to leave GM, knowing that I had a VC network and could go fundraise. Not that fundraising is any easier uh, if you've been to VC, uh, but it, it definitely helped. I loved that story because it's very authentic that all these sort of diverse experiences can come together later in a really good way. Yeah, and I think that's something we sometimes forget when people, you know, people can get so focused on, you know, their career or their company and that's all they're going to do. You kind of forget that, that the other aspects of your life can still help round out either the perspective that you bring or literally the skills that you'll need uh, to be able to do what you want to do. What's your advice to people now, Allison, when you give them career advice? Um, so I, I come at it from a pragmatic perspective. When I graduated in 08, um, my dad's business wasn't doing well. My mom wasn't working that much. And I had student loans to pay off. And so when I talk with people advice to give advice, I let them know that. Uh, it tends to kind of shade the advice that I, I give. But my advice is, is dream big. No what areas you want to impact and then be practical about it. So maybe, you know, right now is not depending on how great your uh, business concept is. Maybe you don't jump ship if you have a, a day job, but start working on it on the side. See how quickly you can grow it. Be, be pragmatic. Economic recessions are tough, but they also end. And so making sure that whatever you're doing right now is helping you make progress either on your day job, which is your small company, or your side job, which is your small company idea, um, really making sure that you're also thinking through the smaller incremental steps you can make or smaller increments you can uh, achieve in terms of new skills and things like that. There's always time to be advancing yourself. So you're thinking about whatever you're doing, whether it's professionally or side careers, always to be advancing and learning, growing as a person? Yeah, and, and it may be in, in ways that seem divergent. I didn't really appreciate that starting an artist collective was going to teach me as much about business as it did, um, yeah. but I kind of figured it would help. Um, and I've learned a lot through that around how to work with different types of people, which was extremely helpful when I was at May Mobility, uh, hiring a sales team. I, I an engineer <laughs> slash venture capitalist. I've never hired a sales team before. Um, I haven't hired a customer team before, but I had experience working with the customers of the Artist Collective and, and understood the level of service that we wanted to make sure we could provide. And so it, it again, it can all seem disparate, but if you're open-minded about the experiences you're having, you can kind of thread them together and appreciate how they can reinforce each other. How did you thread that experience from being a venture capitalist at GM into being a founder at May Mobility? Um, so the, the experience at GM, I had, I sat on a lot of boards. So I understood what the role of the board was, how important setting metrics and milestones for startups are, 
So sort of that high level strategy that companies need to have in order to be making progress in a venture backed way. And, and being able to bring those insights to the team, we had great technology, uh, we had good product sense, but being able to bring a little bit more of that, just like, okay, now how do we set up? What are our next goals? Um, how do we fundraise? How, you know, how do we set up a finance and accounting department? I had watched startups do that from the other side of the table. And so had a bit of an idea on what our next steps would need to be for May Mobility. And that helped a lot. Were you able to sort of see some of the same mistakes being made? I know, I think now that I've been in the startup community for, you know, David and I have both been in it like a decade, probably you too. It's like you start, you do, you hear about these repeated mistakes people make and then you either learn them yourself or you see them enough that you like pick up on it finally. (laughs) Yep. Uh, VP of finance is way more helpful than engineers think. (laughs) They will be, uh, even if they're part-time. Uh, and you can get them part-time, but having somebody that really understands the dynamics of the numbers and can help you manage your manage your money while trying to manage the business is really, really critical. And building those skills early on in a company may seem a little bit overly structured, but when you need to either grow quickly and understand how to make sure you're putting money into the right places or scale back in the case of a pandemic, you've got everybody used to understand how money works for the business, how it can help grow, um, and, and able to participate then in thinking creatively on, on how to either grow quicker or scale back. It seemed like you played a big role in raising capital at May Mobility. Yes. So uh, leveraging my experience on the other side of the table, I led a lot of our negotiations with outside funds in the process, um, but my co-founder, Ed, the CEO, and I would go pitch together. How much did you raise? So over the four rounds that we did, we raised over $86 million. $86 million. <laughs> that's that's well, an yeah. astounding jaw-dropping amount of money. <laughs> I think it's a I lot first, of money, but, but cars and hardware are not cheap. <laughs> I think when, when I first started, my first, when, I, when I wanted to be a founder, I thought, you know, if I raised a million bucks, you know, that's like a ton of money. And I think I thought that that would accrue to me. And maybe I would, you know, use that to buy some things. And I think if somebody would told me, hey, Dave, you're going to raise 86 million, I think I would have been envisioning a big house and limousines, who knows what, personal chef. Is that how it works? No. <laughs> I wish. No. Uh, usually the uh, founding team is the one to see the least of that money coming back into their bank accounts immediately because generally founders have more in equity. And the idea is that your equity is what incentivizes you to keep going. So if a company sells, that's the point at which you get to get the private chef and things like that. <laughs> um, I did make a paycheck. None of us were working for complete, you know, only equity, but it wasn't like any of us were uh, getting too crazy. Most of the money went back into hiring people and figuring out how to grow the business. So you raise and- that money and then you spend it all. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> and you spend it on the business, not on, not, on, not on your own mansion and chef. Correct. Correct. No one, no one bought mansions, no one bought fancy cars, no chefs, no crazy parties, even for the company. We were pretty pragmatic and practical with where we would spend money. So we, we knew that the team was the most important thing. So, you know, we made sure everybody had good, decent salaries, that they had health insurance 
and other types of benefits that could help them feel safe and confident uh, to be able to focus on work. We thought that was really important. Um, we would pay for lunches that brought everybody to, you know, pre-COVID, <laughs> brought everybody together across the different teams, which we, especially as a smaller company, is really important. So that way, you know, engineers are hearing from customer success, finance is hearing from sales. You create sort of those serendipitous uh, interactions. Um, so we would invest in things like that, but not our own, you know, personal wealth. And what are those investors looking for when they give you $86 million? It's not a gift, I don't think. What are they, what are they looking for? Yeah, so at each stage of the company, it's a little bit different. Um, we didn't raise $86 million all at once. Very few companies can do that. Um, our first round, I think, was $3.5 million. And that was really focused on how do we get our technology running on a vehicle and demonstrate some amount of customer traction. And so for us, it was uh, a good blend of how do we make technical progress and, and figure out how to demonstrate that and how do we make you know business progress and really every fundraiser is about that until you don't need you know until technical progress really becomes uh, product improvement and and matching that to how your customers you know growth is growing and so early on uh, both the, the seed one and two were focused on making technical progress and getting sort of the first customers and the first launch. The series A was a little bit more focused on how could we refine. We, we launched at that point um, two different operations and had two more that we were getting ready to launch. So, so on that one, we really pitched, hey, we've got a playbook now. This isn't, a, 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 maybe we'll figure out how to operate sites. At that point, we had been operating one site uh, for seven months. Like we, we know how to kind of start to sustain this. And so the, the fundraise for our series A was we have a playbook to help us to scale. And for the series B, it was continuing along those lines with the playbook to scale, but then an eye towards how do you actually start make, making profit, not just making money, not just bringing in revenue, but sufficient revenue to start looking at covering your costs. Uh, in the AV space, the fundraising tends to run, and even the mobility space broadly, tends to run a little bit of ahead of demonstrated metrics, where if you're in uh, maybe a consumer... Um, like marketplace or sales space, they're going to want to see performance before you'll get big, you know, big checks and big valuation. In the AV space, there's still there was still a bit of a willingness to bet that with a good plan, the funding would help you get there. Did raising that money put a lot of pressure on you to provide a return? Yes. The more money you raise, the more professional you need to be about how you manage the money. So when I, I talked earlier about bringing in the VP of finance, early on we had a part-time VP of finance, which was very helpful in setting up models and how we thought about um, how where we should be putting money to grow the company. Um, but as we went through our series A and into our B, it really became important that we were tracking sort of what were the company milestones that we were trying to achieve and how was the investment that we were putting in either accelerating that or not and, and figuring because the biggest thing with, with startups is you want to understand where you can put more money to grow the business. 
and being able to thus track each metric back to we put X dollars in and we got you know Y dollars out becomes really important. And not just for, for tools of growing the business, but also for your investors to have confidence to be able to put more money into your company and, and make introductions to other investors that could be potentially interested. Once you get into your series A and series B, they really wanna see you acting as a, a fiduciary of their funds and helping them understand how you plan on you know, making more money. Bad th- you know, crappy things happen, <laughs> COVID happens. So if you've been really clear with your, your investors to date and they see that you have a good path for managing the money, that actually increases their likelihood to support you when times get tough. So you also wanna make sure you're being uh, careful and thoughtful about it, even when cash is flush. So that way, if, if things get tight, your board knows that you are able to manage the, the cash with an eye towards growth and will continue to support you. I love that. That's a great perspective. Speaking of COVID, Allison, I mean, I imagine that mobility is probably going to either get accelerated now, this whole autonomous vehicle shift, um, or I, other countries might start purchasing cars again because they want to move away from mass transit. I mean, what sort of changes do you think we'll see and what do you, what do you want to see? Yeah, I think short term, uh, there's going to be personally driven decisions around safe transportation. And I think long-term, we can't lose sight of the overall use of resources for transportation. So right now, um, countries that are getting back out of lockdown, their use of shared transportation modes like buses and trains is down. Their use of passenger vehicles is up to the levels that it was prior to the pandemic. Younger generations that previously did not consider buying a car in the U.S. are actually thinking about, are surveyed such that they're thinking about buying a car. And so I think, honestly, it's going to buy the auto industry a little bit of respite in terms of like the mobility world taking on their, their, fun, their core business, but maybe only by a year or two. Uh, as we look going forward, cars is going to be an interesting thing to watch over the next 18 months, public transit and shared transportation modes, even your Ubers and Lyfts, where people are going to be difficult uh, in terms of how it's going to be difficult in terms of how they actually manage perceptions of cleanliness and safety. And so figuring out how to communicate about cleanliness and safety protocols is going to be very important to rebuild that rider confidence and bring them back into the systems. You also see cities that shut down roads to vehicular traffic, keeping those roads closed even after they, um, even after they start to end the lockdowns. So you see that in Seattle, uh, you see that in cities globally, and I think we'll see more and more of it in cities in the U.S. as they start to open up, keeping cars off those roads so that way more people can use them for running, for walking, uh, for biking, for scooter, for scooting, and so I think. It's going to be really interesting, like like different segments of mobility are going to have different kinds of impacts. Uh, personally owned smaller, you know, micro mobility, I think, is going to be given a lot more space because it doesn't create as much congestion as cars do, but it also gets, you know, helps people to safely move around. You can maintain your distance as long as it's not too, too crowded. 
Um, so I think it's going to be pretty interesting to watch and different segments of the market are going to have different types of challenges. That's super interesting. I still haven't used a scooter. So I guess, I guess that might change for uh, us when we start heading back into downtown. Um, I know you're also like David and I, you're super passionate about Michigan and our, our Metro Detroit region. Um, do you think Detroit has a chance over these next few years to really be a future city where we're innovating in mobility? Like what strengths do you see here? Well, it's interesting. So in the trends in terms of workforce that I've been reading about, most people don't want to go back to the office. <laughs> um, and most cities and employers are trying to think through commute patterns, to reduce congestion. So that way everybody's not trying to pile through the entrance at the same time. But how can we you know, create social distancing opportunities? And that trend towards less dense places um, and the nature of Detroit really being built around the car where, where three months ago I would have been like, oh, the density of Detroit, it's so tough. Yeah. Because there's a lot of single and, and dual family homes actually could be an interesting opportunity coming out of this. I think the topology of how uh, planning and zoning in Detroit has worked in the past gives us an interesting canvas to play with in terms of solutions that can work for less dense cities um, across the nation, especially if they start to see more people moving to them instead of larger cities where there's concern around, you know, sort of personal space and things like that. Detroit is going to have a challenge, though, um, as a, a city, because there have been so many COVID cases. And a lot of that brings back this view on accessibility, poverty, environmental injustice. And so for the city to move forward and get to, to partake in some of those positive possibilities I talked about, we're also going to have to figure out ways to address solutions that can help bring everybody along for the ride, or it's just not going to be that attractive. It's a, it's a, a scary proposition to, to take somebody, you know, that maybe is doing very well in a San Francisco or Manhattan and say, hey, come to Detroit. You've got the space, but at the same time, um, the, the spread of the pandemic has been so, so big. We really need to be thoughtful about balancing out those storylines and how do we help everybody to create a healthier living environment. I love that. I think equity is something that a lot of people, a lot of leaders, founders, um, and community builders think about, but it's almost like going to force us to think about it as we shift into a way and start to like reinvent post pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah, it's going to be very, very important. And Detroit has an opportunity to really set a model for the US. We do, I totally agree. Um, so maybe David, you think we should jump into questions? Let's do it. This is the best part of the show. Are you out there? You get to ask your questions, upvote the questions you love. And Allison, you're going to answer everything, right? Open it all up. I'll do my best. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll moderate for us. Um, so we got our first question from Chad. Uh, and, and his is around, given the whole biohazard situation, are there any thinking in interior materials that should be used for rideshare vehicles? UVC lights for post-ride sterilization. Have you read up on anything uh, in that nature, Allison? Uh, yeah. So that kind of work was actually already going on back when I was in GM Ventures uh, 
we were looking at UVC lights that could be built into vehicle interiors. And so I think you're going to see an acceleration of antimicrobial coatings, uh, UVC lights. At the end of the day, some stuff still needs to get wiped down and off. What, what is this? The UVC light like fixes, so the good, kills the COVID, kills bacteria? UVC light is able to kill uh, many forms of bacteria and some forms of virus. So I don't know that it has been tested against um, the coronavirus yet, but it, it's used. So there's actually robots right now that are used in hospitals. They just like go into the room and flash the room with UVC light and it's able to kill, even tough to kill things like uh, MRSA. Hmm. But it's safe for... It's safe for is not safe for humans. So you oh. have to do it after a human is out of the space. Just oh like God. we shouldn't sit out in the sunlight with uh, without <laughs> sunblock on for too long. Uh, yeah, it's along those lines. Please uh, tell so, me you don't have sunblock on So that would be today. something, yes, yeah. <laughs> always. I'm quite pale, so I got to make sure even, in, oh, even in the spring sun. Oh my gosh, it's so cold out. <laughs> hey, it's gonna get to 70 this week. So I think that's an important <laughs> thing to remember. Uh, <laughs> Other questions, Chad has a few. He wanted to know about, he saw May Mobility doing pilots in cities like Grand Rapids. Do you know of any other upcoming pilots um, and other less complex environments? He suggested Harbor Beach, Michigan. Or maybe you can share a little bit about like what makes a city easy to pilot in. Yeah, so I can't speak to May Mobility's plans uh, in the future, but generally what we would look at while I was there wasn't, was you know, some amount of what was the complexity, but also understanding, was there a need for transportation? So not just would it be cool here, but were there people that needed to move on a daily basis? Like, could we create a system that would get used a lot? For ride-sharing uh, platforms, utilization is really key. How many people are you carrying how often? And so for us, it would be a balance of looking at the technical complexity, but then making sure that we had a, a good understanding of who would use the system once we launched. Very cool. I know you and I talked about Detroit before, and there's just so much change in their building that was happening. Um, but you guys were doing a lot of piloting with corporations in Detroit too, which was cool to see. Uh, yeah, another corporate partners are a, a nice and easy one. They know who needs to move when and where. Uh, another question from Chad. Uh, he has a couple more questions about my mobility, but did those vehicles, maybe you could talk about how the autonomous shuttles work. Do they stick to a fixed route or were they able to navigate to different addresses? So with the technology that May Mobility has deployed, the vehicles have to stay on a fixed road network. And so if we had, you know, multiple cross streets and things mapped, we could set new routes um, pretty dynamically in terms of where the cars could go. Uh, it really came down to how much road network we would map. When you envisioned May Mobility, was that the vision? Was it fixed routes? So I call that a business hack. <laughs> With fixed routes, you you don't have to map as much, which which is its own overhead challenge in terms of keeping things updated and stuff like that. We didn't have to ask people to download an app. We wanted to create as little friction as possible to get people in the system the first time. And so fixed route, they know where they can go. They know where they can get off. Uh, you just have, to, in most of the cases, you just have to show up to the stop. 
In Detroit, it is a private service, so you have to have a badge, uh, like a, an office badge that gets you in. But trying to really keep it simple. The, the plan for the company over time is to expand. Um, I can't really comment on when, because they're still figuring that out. Um, but the, the approach towards the uh, fixed route was really what I liked to call a business hack. <laughs> I feel like a lot of founders, you know, they, they envision like if they're building a, a football stadium or something, you know, they envision like a big, huge, like Ford field or something as version one. And then, but you know, they've got the budget for like, I don't know, you know, a high school football stadium or probably even less actually, you know, like a dirt field with some, with some orange cones <laughs> on it. And if, if, when the, how did you, how do you decide when to make the business hacks and like, what's the right thing to go to market with? Minimum viable product concept is your friend, especially when you're early stage. When you're early stage, you have big dreams about what your company is going to be able to do, what your technology is going to be able to do, but those don't actually matter until you're able to grow the company to achieve them. And so it's really important to think through Yes, you want to be Ford Field, but what does it take to be Ford Field? Uh, are you trying to, to grow the Lions? Are you trying to become the best uh, arena, uh, you know, event producer? Figuring out who you want to be, such that it becomes, you know, the the giant opportunity is really important. But then you have to break it down into bite-sized steps because people are going, especially investors and customers, honestly, are going to want to see demonstrated progress that they can trust that your vision is the thing that's going to happen before they're going to buy in wholesale. I think that's interesting because trust is on my mind a lot as we start to hopefully in Michigan, you know, slowly reenter our economy. Um, and it kind of is tied to our next question from Frank. Uh, do you think people will use ride share and car pooling? Do you think people will trust sharing cars again with each other? I mean, uh, without any sort of uh, plan for safe for like cleaning and verification and a communication plan, I think it'll take a little while. And by a little while, I mean a few years. But I don't think that the rideshare companies, the transit companies are going to just sit back and wait. I think you're going to see a lot of interesting effort to create sort of standard cleaning protocols and things like that, and then communicate and educate people that these are in place to start to build that confidence up, back up. Yeah, I think that's going to be with public spaces, too. Part of it is also going to be on users. And we have to build trust, I think, between people again um, and how we wear our masks and how we take care of ourselves. It's going to be really interesting summer here, but we have to start having those conversations <laughs> and being proactive yep. and not sort of, you know, dividing among camps of how we feel. <laughs> it's, it's really an interesting summer I think we're going to have in Michigan, but um, other questions coming up from Richard. What are the hurdles mobility faces uh, getting riders back into vehicles? Kind of, I guess, a similar question. Um, but do you have any other thoughts there on how to get people back inside to a vehicle? Yeah, I think mobility can mean a lot of different things. And so a vehicle versus a bike versus a scooter, there's going to be different things that have to get done. Um, in terms of building that confidence and getting people back into the various modes. So I, I think we will see specific communications trying to help build that confidence back up. But the other thing that mobility service providers need to look at is pain points. Or is it really hard to get around? Or are there groups that like 
really can't get around today and thus really need the service and and really focusing on some of those pain points to try to help drive people back into the system. So uh, for instance, people that are blind, if transit's not running and you can't get a taxi and you can't get a, a ride share, you can't go anywhere. So yes, if you live in a, in a city, you can get um, some things delivered in terms of groceries and things like that, but your ability to function in the world is drastically reduced. Finding those groups that have those kinds of pain points in terms of transportation and focusing back on making sure that the solutions work for them is going to be a good way to get back into the ecosystem and, and, and finding people that will use the services regularly to help you continue to grow. Talking about post-COVID, let's, let's go for a minute into the future. And you know, if we wave a magic wand at some point in the future and cars are all, all vehicles are self-driven and they're super safe, maybe 99% less fatalities or accidents than what we have today, how does that change our lives? How does that change our world? Well, that's going to be matched with the fact that like companies like Twitter are not requiring people to go back into the office ever. They just announced, I think, over, over the last day. And so I don't know how a fully autonomous uh, world is going to change things because it's being matched right now with huge potential changes in how people work. So how often do you have to go into the office? What does your commute look like? Right now, you know, most people had to had to commute to the office every day. So that would drive where you want to live um, and things like that, where if you're decoupled from having to be office adjacent-ish or thinking about your commute, you may think differently about where you live. So you, people may be moving more rural or suburban, which would drive a more dispersed uh, network of AVs and maybe not have cataclysmic traffic uh, issues. Uh, or maybe more people want to be in cities because they can you know, work from home, but go when we're allowed to again, <laughs> go to more bars and restaurants and plays and the, the cultural institutions that cities are able to support. Um, Maybe more people are going to want that. And if everybody is riding around in a city in an AV on the roads as they exist today and will exist in the future, we're not going to tear down buildings and put in more roads, most likely. Um, we could have major issues in terms of traffic congestion. And so that's where I think uh, over the next year or two, uh, working on the communication plans to to make sure that people feel confident and comfortable with shared transportation is going to be very important. Prior to COVID, we were headed into a potentially very bleak future with AVs. Uh, if everyone's riding around in their own autonomous vehicle, that actually means 20% more of the population could be added to the roads that are already that were already congested um, in terms of young people, old people, disabled people. And the roads just weren't built for that much traffic. And so it's going to be really interesting, but communities are going to need to be thoughtful about what kind of policies they have in place to incentivize behaviors that make getting around uh, tenable. It's a lot to chew on. Well, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, obviously coming from co-working, we think the future of work is going to be super flexible and it's really fascinating watching what these big companies are doing and some people are industry think hey you know what people will go back to the office just give it some time but the bigger trends i think we're going to see is flexibility there's no reason why people can't work from home and an office is going to be more optional and more of an amenity that one time per week or two times per week when you need 
it's much harder to collaborate virtually. It's much harder to build new relationships virtually. So depending on your job, there's going to be different needs. Um, but day to day, you're just as productive, sometimes more productive and burning out at home because you have no boundaries, right? And so it's, yeah. it's, it's like this experiment of work from home work. And so do you need as much space? Do you need more flexible space? You just work once a week in an office. And I think for startups, uh, we just had Jeff on from Ambassador uh, who's starting another company and he shared with us that he's going to do all virtual for his team um, because he thinks it's the best for attracting talent and giving them that flexibility. So it's going to be really fascinating, but I, I never thought, obviously, getting in your car every day, that's the, one of the biggest impacts besides the amount of space you need. Um, yeah, so it's going to be interesting, but I think for startups, there could be some benefits. You don't have to be in San Francisco to get the best talent if the best talent's working from home. And you don't have to have the most expensive home or or city address. You can be in more flexible, affordable places like Detroit. So these things are all going to coalesce, and we're going to probably see something really different here in the next six months or a year. Yeah, I'm curious to see, I think from a talent perspective, the the need to be in Silicon Valley is definitely reduced. Um, a lot of times VCs on Sand Hill Road still say that they want to have uh, that their startups close by so they can you know catch up with them and and be there to help work through issues. And so as, if you're a founder that wants to remain outside of Silicon Valley. I think from a talent perspective, that's becoming more and more possible. Um, from a dealing with VCs perspective, just get comfortable with flying back and forth and do what you can to try to find either a really strong investor or a really strong advisor who has scaled companies, maybe in your industry before, that is more local. So that way, if the VCs are like, we need you to move out here so we can coach you or whatever they claim they need to do, um, you can be like, look, I got somebody here. They have the experience you're looking for. Please talk with them and they can be my local coach. Um, be, just getting ahead of that conversation is helpful. Yeah, that's super great to hear because the trend probably 10 years ago was no, you absolutely have to be in the Valley if I'm investing in you. Yep. Um, but now it's no, here, I can take control of that and here's what I'm doing. That's great. Great tip, Allison. Thank you. Um, so a couple more questions in the chat box. We have one from David, not David, our co-host. <laughs> um, do you see growth happening in the consumer product industry and an opportunity for new startups to make a widget for aftermarket sales? This could be a product a consumer wants or needs in a car that we don't need right now. Do you have any examples? Not sure if I fully grasp what David's asking, but. So aftermarket car products. Um, I think anything, especially for people that want to continue to use their car in a shared way, anything that can clean it. Uh, so right now I actually keep a bottle of disinfectant in our car. <laughs> and when I get home, I spray down all of the surfaces I just touched. Um, so anything that can, can clean it and keep it sanitized, I think, um, is going to be a space where people will be interested for a while. I was actually reading a New York Times article about a guy who lives in an apartment building in New York and he has to drop his vehicle off at a garage and then the valet actually goes and parks it. So before he can even leave for the day, he has to wipe down the whole car. It's not like he can do it the night before when he gets home. He has to wipe down the whole car because somebody else just used it 
and then drive to work. And so for people like that, or people that are trying to use their vehicles for lifts and Ubers, and obviously even an Uber Eats and things like that, to be able to clean the vehicle, I think will be really, really an, an, a unique opportunity of the time. Yeah, it's so simple, but we can't forget that cleanliness and wellness. I mean, that's what it's all about right now. Uh, we wipe down everything and keep some sanitizer in our car too. <laughs> Um, and wiping down is too much for me. I'm I'm locked down, but you know, wiping down my groceries and all that, I just feel like it's it's too much for me. I don't wipe down my groceries. I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> we were, and then I think we got lazy. <laughs> um. Uh, next question from Dave: Is there a book you'd recommend that you're reading? So I have been taking the time to really build out more of my knowledge around urban planning, city planning, the history there, um, the history of like the role of the federal government in transportation, because oh those were gaps that I had. Uh, so my book recommendations are going to be a little wonky, <laughs> um, but I did just finish The Power Broker about Robert Moses. Um, and so he, he had a big hand in shaping how the city of New York uh, evolved from a transportation perspective and ended up influencing a lot of city design in the U.S. with more funds being pushed towards roads. And I was so frustrated to learn that we've known it since the 50s that more lanes on a road does not lead to reduced traffic. It leads to increased traffic. We've known this since the 50s, but people have still been pushing it as a solution to, through today. Wait, um, that so that was, you get a bigger pipe, but not more throughput? You get a bigger pipe, but people assume because there's a bigger pipe that they can use it too. And so the uh, you, the number of people trying to use the pipe actually goes up and defeats the purpose. Oh, that's, you. that's interesting because that's something we just keep doing over and over again. <laughs> yeah, and we've known since the 50s that it's a bad idea. Um, so that, but that's like an 1100 page book. That one, that one took a while. Um, I also read a book, uh, Divided Highways, that was about the funding of the roads in the U.S., just trying to, to understand that space, which was pretty good. And then the last book that I'm reading right now, probably a little bit more uh, because I'm trying to take some time, having just left uh, the startup world, uh, taking a break, um, is one that's called Just Enough. And that's really about thinking about what you want to accomplish as a person. Um, and, and how to define success for yourself. So instead of getting caught up in the idea of the big house and the, the chef that we were talking about earlier, instead of getting caught up in that, really thinking about for your own self, what is just enough? Um, for me, main mobility was an awesome run, but that was pretty much all I did for the last three years. Uh, and I love the Artist Collective. Luckily, I was far enough along that it was sort of on autopilot for a few years. But I want to take time to get back into that. I want to be making a little bit more music, hang, seeing my family. Uh, and so uh, a mentor actually recommended that book to me. And it's been really helpful to put a framework around not feeling guilty for not just like jumping back into another startup. I think everybody is feeling that way right now. Like, don't just jump into more things. Like there's a reason why we're pausing. Um, if we have the privilege to just pause and what is it that you want to do with this extra time and this extra space you might have. So that's, I love that thought. I have a book 
I can add in. Uh, so, you know, I was sharing before the show that my husband, Mark's taking his break for a few weeks from one startup. He is going to start another, but until he announces that, he's also taking some time to just relax and refresh. And he's reading a book called American Icon. It's about when Ford hired Alan Mulally as the CEO back in like 2006, 2008. And he's just learning a ton about how that period of time is something on this show we've gone back to a few times, um, but he's picking up some interesting leadership tips. So for anyone I don't, interested in auto mobility, that might be a good one to check out. I was thinking about this topic of enough, maybe about a week ago. I, last year, Colin and I were reading this book called The Old Way. And it was about how people lived 50,000 years ago. And I was thinking about those people. None of them were thinking like, oh, let's go get, you know, I don't know, you know, tons and tons and tons of meat and just put it into like a, a, a whatever, a storage thing to just accumulate more. You know, like that idea of accumulation that we have now or a building always doing and doing more. You know, they're, they're I'm speculating because I wasn't around then, but I'm speculating. They were thinking, you know, like, I don't know, what do I eat today? And... And just do what I do today and who I hang out with today versus I spend a lot of time thinking about what, what do I want to do and, and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it puts a lot of pressure on me, like you're saying. And I wonder why I was wondering why, why is that? That's a great question. I think part of it is we've been afforded the ability to to accumulate. To your point, uh, hunter-gatherers didn't have refrigeration. Um, <laughs> maybe we're using dehydration. Um, but they, they weren't really afforded that luxury to be able to contemplate in that way. Um, I think as you've seen different revolutions uh, take place um, in terms of how people are able to uh, bring together their resources collectively, and then some people get to take advantage of that. They get this time and space to think about how to do bigger and more, uh, and then forget to take the time to think about why. We get so focused on the doing and the building that we need to step back and ask ourselves why, what's what's the purpose behind it? Also for ourselves, because I think as a founder or creator, really it's your personal mission that you're baking into what you're creating. And you want that to live on when you do step back and have success and can go on to start another company or another art project or piece of work that you're working on. But But yeah, you need that, you need to take that moment and step back. Um, so Allison, one of the questions in the chat box, and it might be good timing to shift to, what is your new company, Middle Third, about? And <laughs> want to know if you need to so, <laughs> Sorry, what was the second part? He also wants to know if you need a personal assistant. <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> Fortune favors the bold. Not in need of a personal assistant yet, but noted. Um, so Middle Third is a consulting LLC that I had set up. Um, and right now I'm working with different groups kind of across the transportation and mobility ecosystem from um, infrastructure to, to education across these types of issues. Uh, and so it gives me the flexibility to work on a wide variety of different projects while bringing the specific expertise that I have uh, in terms of auto product development, working with cities and things like that to bear. So it's been, been fun as a, as a, side hustle um, and then also continuing to think about what uh, impact I want to have next. Whenever I hear that company name, Middle Third, I think of Silicon Valley and Middle Out. I'm not familiar with Middle Out, but Middle Third for me was really around translation. Um, I have experience 
working now uh, in sales and finance and engineering and product development and venture. And a lot of times the biggest issues in business come down when you can't translate from one sort of industry speak to another. Uh, and so that's something that I've found that I'm uniquely kind of good at. And so that's that's where my my idea for the, the name came. I love it. And how can people get in touch if they want to support your new company, Allison? Uh, they can hit me up on LinkedIn, um, Allison Malik, A-L-I-S-Y-N, um, or they can email me, Allison at middlethird.co. Cool. And we have just a couple minutes, so maybe we can take one or two more couple new questions popping in. Um, Alex wants to know if you think that Midwest venture capitalists are going to be in investing right now during COVID-19 and beyond in mobility. A lot of Midwest, a lot of venture capitalists in general right now are focused on supporting their existing portfolio and making sure that they're stable. So I think for the next month or two, that's probably going to be the focus. Um, as we continue to evolve out of this crisis, I think that you will see a, a focus on mobility. I think even before um, the epidemic really put people in lockdown, investors were starting to understand that mobility as a quick buck uh, unicorn uh, was maybe not a realistic uh, expectation. Seeing how Uber's IPO went, Lyft's IPO went, um, and even the fact like, sorry about that, I had a call coming through. Um, uh, <laughs> it switches my headphones. Um, and so I seeing- I never with me. Nope, um, I'm back. Uh, so. <laughs> like the performance of rideshare uh, scooter companies, I think people got really hyped on them and then realized that the fundamentals of the business are not quite what they thought they would be. And so I think there's there's a, a cooling, but not a, an aversion to mobility companies, especially ones that have good fundamentals in terms of the, the business focus that they have and the economics um, and have a, a, a true market to scale in investors are always looking for for good opportunities but you probably will have to do a little bit more to demonstrate why it's a good economic opportunity um why you're focusing on the market that you are and why now i think that cooling off though is a trend we're seeing across tech it's not specific to mobility yeah there was a, a mobility cooling before all of this and now all of tech is cooled yeah now we're realizing oh maybe that unicorn thing isn't realistic for everybody <laughs> Um, especially if you're not, don't know how to become profitable. Um, and then one more question from Dave, is there any technology or innovation you're seeing specifically targeting mobility in rural, rural areas? Not mobility of people, <laughs> uh, rural areas offer a challenge for passenger transport, uh, just from density and utilization. However, there is a lot of work going on in terms of autonomous technology and new technology for agriculture. And so I think the impacts to rural America are going to be less in the how people get around and probably a little bit more in how tools move around um, to support the industries that are in rural America. Super interesting. Um, I think we we touched on these couple other questions. It's a little more in main mobility and doing a pilot in a small city. Amanda, Amanda, there's one for you though. There is one for me. I don't I mean, know. 
it's going back to this future of the office space, which is tied to future mobility, wants to know how co-working is going. Um, co-working is going to change. I think similar to what Allison was talking about, a lot of the points, the things that matter most to you every day right now, cleanliness, safety, sanitation, the offices are going to have to be safely spaced out more and de-densified, which um, ours were starting to head in that direction. We were trying to make them bigger and spread people out a little more, but it wasn't really healthy. If you'd ever been in a WeWork office where they crammed 20 people into one small room, I think we got that from New York City. I don't know, but that's a, that, that actually isn't healthy. You, you don't need to be right up next to your neighbor. Um, so things are going to be de-densified, but we think things are going to be more flexible than ever before. And small businesses and startups already were flexible. They already were co-working, sometimes working from home just because they didn't have the money yet to build out an office space. Um, but now you're going to see, I think, a lot more bigger teams and bigger companies decide why invest so much money in building a big, beautiful office space when maybe we don't need it. And maybe we can just use co-working to supplement some of that. So our industry thinks... This, the big shift that will drive co-working will come from these corporate changes, but the next six to 12 months, it's all going to be about redesigning the office so that people are safely spaced out, not crammed next to each other. Um, and like in the summer, we're going to be doing a slow re-entry where you, you will have to wear masks and be careful and space out six feet apart and not cram into an elevator, like entering the building. You have to think about everything from how you walk into the building how you access your desk, your office, how you safely use a conference room. I think all spaces will need more private rooms so that people can do Zoom or WebEx calls. Um, so I would encourage anyone listening just to be very open-minded and flexible, but also know that not everybody wants to stay home. Um, depends on your personal situations, but uh, you may not have a safe home environment. You may not have good technology at home. You may just need to get out once a week to focus somewhere that's quiet and safe. So that's what we think And sadly, we do a ton of public events. I can't imagine a world where we do that anytime soon. I think it's all going to be great crowd cast talks like this with Allison uh, for the next six to 12 months. So I would get used to tuning into virtual events. <laughs> Allison, let's get, I want to give you the last word. What, what's on your mind? Right now, the fact that it's actually warm and nice to Michigan. <laughs> I'm glad I could take this inside. <laughs> um, but also, I'm, I'm really curious to see the, the innovations that people think of to help society evolve to be able to live uh, more healthily while still being able to interact. So I, I think it's going to be a time for, of a lot of hardship for some companies, but also a lot of opportunity as people think of new ways to bring people together um, or, or help reduce the risks uh, for how, how we used to live. And I'm super appreciative of everyone for participating today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for, for having me. Thank yeah. you for joining us. Yeah, on that note, because everybody put your, put your hands together. And uh, mm -hmm. Allison, thank you. In the chat box too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elson. It was so fun to hear from you and see you and and hope you're well and keep us posted on the new company and uh, you might get a personal assistant out of this at least. <laughs> That's like. Awesome.
<laughs> thank you guys so much. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. We'll see you again next time on another edition of Coping with COVID. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to our Coping with COVID series brought to you by Bamboo Detroit. If you would like to view all of our virtual episodes, you can go to www.crowdcast.io forward slash David Silva Smith. Again, that's forward slash D-A-V-I-D-S-I-L-V-A-S-M-I-T-H. This podcast is produced and brought to you by Bamboo Detroit, located in the heart of downtown Detroit. Bamboo Detroit specializes in co-working space and amenities for entrepreneurs and forward thinkers. Bamboo Detroit, where we do more together because Detroit is for doers. If you would like to support our podcast, you can become a sponsor of the Doers Network. We have gold, silver, and bronze packages available. If you have a business you would like to promote, you will be able to reach over 10,000 listeners around the world each month at your fingertips. So if you want to reach our audience of founders, CEOs, innovators, and leaders, become a sponsor today. For more information, email us at info at bamboodetroit.com. We appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast right here on the Doers Network. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doers Podcast, where actives grow and thrive. The Doers Podcast is produced by Bamboo Detroit Network. For more information, visit us at